I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined. The pandemic has upended so much about the way we live. Thankfully, according to neuroscientist David Eagleman, the human brain is more adaptable to change than we originally thought. It's constantly reconfiguring its circuitry. It's a living, dynamic, electric fabric that is so huge, it's totally mind-boggling to us. You can't possibly wrap your arms around that. And so the days of thinking about this as, okay, you mold it into a shape and then it holds on to that shape, that's, that's gone. Then, as students transition to online learning, are there any ramifications of the extra hours of reading on iPads and computers? The two really important worries I have concerns whether or not when we read, we are giving enough time to take on the perspective of others. That's what builds empathy. Unlocking the mysteries of the brain, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. The brain is the command center of the human body. Three pounds of technology, billions of tiny neurons, all encased in our skulls. But what do we really know about how the brain functions? Is the brain hardwired or constantly changing? In his latest book, neuroscientist David Eagleman describes our brains as constantly changing and reconfiguring the circuitry throughout our lives. The more experiences the brain absorbs, the more it adjusts. And as we'll find out, this is especially useful during times of change, like a pandemic. The book is called Live Wired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain. David Eagleman is also a professor at Stanford University, and he joins me now. David, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, there's so much in this book I want to talk about, but but right in the beginning, you tell a story that just just blew me away. It's of a young boy who, uh, due to a number of medical circumstances, essentially had to live his life with half of a brain, which I didn't think was possible. But but I'd love it if you would tell that story and just kind of launch into it. Yeah, Matthew was a kid who grew up in my hometown. He got uh, intractable epilepsy in one half of his brain, one hemisphere. And so it turns out the surgery for that is called a hemispherectomy. You take out half of the brain. And it turns out as long as you do this before the kid is about seven years old, the child is just fine. And the functions that would have existed in that hemisphere of the brain that's been removed get rewired onto the other hemisphere. And the kid often has a slight contralateral limp on the other side of his body um, a slight limp, he's not as strong. But otherwise, cognitively, um, children do just fine with this surgery. And and I start the book that way just because it's such a stunning thing. We don't build our technology this way. I can't take my laptop and tear out half the circuitry and expect it to still work just fine. But we can do that with the brain, which is a completely different kind of technology that we don't yet know how to build. Yeah. Can, can you say more about the really the unique nature of the brain, which is something we, you know, we, we, we seem to be learning a lot more about. You use words like plasticity, uh, malleability. I mean, kind of go further into it. Yeah. Well, so what I do in, in the book Livewired is I define this new term, liveware. And the reason I do is because, you know, essentially we're completely used to talking about hardware and software. That's how we build all of our current devices. But the fact is what the brain is doing is something very different. It changes its own hardware on the fly all the time. And about 100 years ago, the great psychologist William James coined the term plasticity. And what he was referring to was, um, you know, this is why we call the material plastic, plastic, because you can mold it into a shape and it holds that shape. It holds on to it. But the reason I'm suggesting that that term might be outdated for us now is because what the brain's actually doing is constantly plugging and replugging and, and changing connection strengths over 86 billion brain cells, neurons, and each one of these has about 10,000 connections to its neighbors. So you have hundreds of trillions of connections in the brain and your whole life it's constantly reconfiguring its circuitry. It's a living dynamic electric fabric that is so huge, it's totally mind boggling to us. You can't possibly wrap your arms around that. And so the days of thinking about this as, okay, you mold it into a shape and then it holds on to that shape, that's, that's gone. It's actually a much bigger thing than that. So I'm, I'm calling this liveware. 
And, um, and this is what is so remarkable is we're all walking around with three pounds of this technology in our skulls. It's, it's an existence proof that this kind of thing can exist and work and so on, but we don't actually have any capacity to build technology like this now. So my goal in this book was to distill down everything we know into some basic principles about what the brain is up to so that this can be a turning moment in history where engineering starts drafting off of neuroscience and we build a completely new generation of machines. Yeah. And, you know, if I have this right, the fact that the brain is kind of able to, to change, to morph, to create new pathways is, is pretty much what makes a human a human versus a human or, you know, versus a dog or something. I mean, this, this is an utterly different way uh, of, of, of understanding the brain and putting together a brain than anything we see in nature. Well, th that's exactly right in the sense that what we as humans represent is the most extreme version of this plasticity. So all animals have brains that are live wired to some degree. So for example, with my dog, I can teach my dog a trick and then um, she can figure it out and do it that way. Obviously it's easier with young dogs as the expression goes. Um, but with humans, we are especially plastic. We drop into the world so malleable that as a result, we have these incredibly long infancies, um, way longer than any other species. And it takes us a very long time to reach adolescence and so on, as opposed to if you watch, let's say a zebra or a giraffe get born, they're walking within 45 minutes. They wobble up on their little pencil-y legs and they're running around. But you've probably noticed that with human babies, it doesn't take 45 minutes, it takes a little longer. And, and, and that's because, yeah, we represent the most malleable species. And as a result, we have taken over every corner of the planet. It's been a really good trick on Mother Nature's part to try this out. And, um, you know, we've even gotten off the planet. We've invented the internet. We've, you know, cured all kinds of things. And so it's, it's a terrific trick. We drop into the world malleable and we absorb everything around us, our cultures, our beliefs, our languages. Um, and that allows us to not have to, you know, start over the way that a, a, an alligator, when, when it's born into the world, essentially is doing everything uh, from scratch in terms of living an alligator life. But when a, when a child drops into the world, they inherit all of the inventions and culture and learning and knowledge that have come before them. So they get to springboard right off this launching pad right from the first moment, simply by having a brain that's willing to absorb what's going on around it. And there's a kind of really interesting, like a philosophical idea you put out there in the book, which is say David Eagleman was born um, just as you are now, was born a thousand years ago, um, we would think you would kind of be the exact same person. But it turns out it doesn't quite work that way. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, it's that, um, yeah, so if I dropped into the world with exactly my DNA, as you said, we have the impression, no, well, just, I would just be David a thousand years ago. But in fact, who you are has to do with everything around you, what you absorb, the ideas, the beliefs, and so on. And so... Um, you know, that's, of course, it's impossible to put a number on it, but let's say that's half of, of what you are. So you drop into the world with a certain set of genes, and that essentially gives you your predilections and your possibilities. And from there, every experience that you have shapes and molds you from there. And so you go off on very different trajectories depending on what's going on with you. So a thousand years ago, I would have had, uh, you know, medieval beliefs and superstitions and whatever the language was wherever I was born and, and so on. I would, I would quite possibly be um, a different person if I were born 10,000 years ago, um, pre-agricultural revolution, I'd be even, even more different, even with the same DNA. And so when mm -hmm. we look at, when we run this thought experiment and we think, oh yeah, I'd kind of be the same person, just dressed differently and acting a little differently. It's not the case. Who you are has everything to do with what is around you. And one thing I took away from this book was there's a certain type of use it or lose it nature of the brain. I mean, you have a lot of different examples of this um, where, um, where, where the brain can take in so much, but it just needs the stimuli to do it, right? 
Yeah, exactly. It turns out this is a gamble on Mother Nature's part to say, look, I'm going to drop this half-baked brain into the world and I'm going to expect that all the proper stimuli are there for developing this brain. And that works almost all the time. But occasionally you get one of these tragic cases where a child is so deeply neglected that they're not getting the proper input, they're not getting the language, they're not getting the touch, the love, this sort of thing. And, um, and we see what happens with their brain, the way it does not develop correctly. So for example, um, in, in Romania, after the fall of Ceausescu, there were tens of thousands of kids who ended up in these orphanages because, um, because their parents had been killed. And so the staff was completely overwhelmed. So they said, look, just don't, don't touch the kids and don't talk to the kids because otherwise they'll get clingy. And so that's what they did. So all these children were raised in, a, in an environment where they weren't getting the proper kind of input and they all ended up with really bad cognitive deficits as a result. And sometimes you find abused children who have who've essentially literally been locked in a room and not talked to and um, just sort of locked in the dark and they have terrible deficits. They, um, they can't speak. They don't have proper vision. They can't chew uh, solid food. They never get the rules of grammar, even after they're rescued and given all the care and attention in the world. There's a certain window of time when you can become you and you can develop your cognitive skills. And once that passes, it's too late. You know, I mean, th there was there were those examples you mentioned. There were other uh, clinical ones using rats where a certain um, control or a set of rats were given lots of things to interact with and play with versus another group which had nothing. And then there were these brain scans done on them and they turned out to have very different looking brains. And all of this and what you're talking about makes me think there are kind of massive implications for education, for raising children. And, and David, I know you, you have two small children, if I'm right. And, and right. I wonder how you think about this in the context of raising them. Oh, I mean, um, yeah, I, I do think about this all the time. And my wife is a neuroscientist also. So we're always thinking and talking about this. I mean, happily, it's not too tough to, to put things in a place where kids are getting the love and attention and language they need. So it's not like a parent has to, you know, parents already torture themselves all the time that they're not doing right. enough. And they're not doing a good enough job. Right. But, but in this case, happily, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward to do. Um, but, you know, I, th I think there are useful, useful lessons about raising a child that come from neuroscience. I mean, one, one of the, th actually, this is perhaps a slight tangent, but I, um, I get asked all the time about what it is to raise kids now when they're growing up digital, when they have access to the internet all the time. And I have to tell you, I am completely a cyber optimist about this. I think it is so wonderful not for kids to waste a ton of time on screens, but just to have the access to the world of knowledge in a way that I did not growing up. So, you know, I, I grew up and when I wanted to know something, my mother would drive me down to the library, which was about 20 minutes away, and I would pull out an Encyclopedia Britannica and try to, you know, find the article. Hopefully they had the article. Maybe it was 10 years outdated, whatever. Um, but now children... The, the moment they're curious about something, they can get the answer. And it turns out from a brain point of view, this is extremely useful because you have the right cocktail of neurotransmitters present when you are curious about something. And so if you get the answer in the context of asking the question, it will actually stick. You'll have, a, you'll have better plasticity there as opposed to when I was growing up, I learned lots of just-in-case information, just in case I ever need to know these dates or this thing. I mean, we have uh, an Amazon Alexa and a Google Home in the house, and so my kids constantly are asking questions to it. As soon as they think of something, they ask a question, they get the answer, and then they're on to the next thing. And this is a terrific way for a child to be able to dive into David. the sphere of human knowledge from any entry door that they want, from whatever they're curious about at the moment, they get in and then, and then they think, wow, that's interesting, that's weird. And so then they ask the next question, the next question, and they dive deeper and deeper into that sphere. But they've gotten there via some pathway that's meaningful to them. Which is super interesting. I mean, one thing I think we're going to hear later on this program is um, also, though, if there's a fear that, uh, you know, children are not diving in, though, is deeply to certain material. There's a certain kind of artificiality of screens, too, um, that may impact how we learn. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, this has been a fear um, that several people have had. It's actually very, very difficult to test this sort of thing because if you look at digital natives, kids who've grown up wired, there's no actual good control group to compare them against. So you can compare them to the previous generation, but there are, of course, a hundred other differences there. Or maybe you could compare them to kids the same age, but who are growing up completely impoverished, um, you know, somewhere in, in rural China or the favelas of South America or something. But there are a hundred other differences there as well. And so it's actually very difficult for us to ever know what exactly is the um, consequence of, of growing up digital. I, as I said, you know, I think as long as a parent makes sure that the kid isn't spending all the time on the screen, but also doing physical things and so on, I'm very optimistic about where this is going. I, I think kids in the next generation are going to be um, clearly and significantly smarter than we are. And the reason I say this is because yeah, I run into kids all the time who, who say something, I think, and I say to them, wow, that's really smart. How did you know that? And they say, oh, I watched a TED Talk on that. You know, when we grew up, uh, actually, I, I don't know how old you are, but for myself, when I grew up, I, um, you know, I had the homeroom teacher that I was stuck with in my little hometown, and that's where I got my information. But now a kid can watch the best person on the planet give the best talk of his or her life in 15 minutes and you know, they can really get something deeply and with beautiful visuals, and uh, it just speeds things up in a, in a terrific way. Well, you know, as you've been studying the brain so much and, and have been looking at the latest research, I kind of want to jump right now into the present day. We hear, we hear so many people right now in this pandemic um, talk about how they cannot remember things, how there's this kind of brain fog, how one day seems to kind of lead to the other without any separation. And I just keep thinking, what is happening to our memory, each of yeah. us collectively? And, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. We lay down memories in a location-based manner. We're very sensitive to location. We and all other animals are. So normally when we're running around and we've got to, you know, we meet so-and-so at a coffee shop here, then we go to a restaurant with this couple over here, then we go to our work and so on. We're laying down memories that way. And what's been very difficult for everyone who's working at home is you're stuck in the same four walls and you just don't get that differentiation uh, physically. And so what happens is everything starts blurring together. So as it happens, I've done about 20 years of study on this very topic about time perception and how that is tied to the amount of memory that you're able to draw upon. So for example, if you go on an exciting weekend vacation and then you come back to work on Monday, it seems, it seems as though, wow, it's been forever since I was here on Friday. There's a real something that happened. Why? Because you can draw on all this memory. In contrast, if you have a boring weekend at home where nothing novel happens, and then you're back at work on Monday, you think, my God, I was just here. I can't believe it's Monday morning already. Um, and so the quarantine is like the boring vacation rather, I mean, the boring weekend rather than the novel vacation in the sense that it's very hard to lay down new memories here that are distinguishable from one another. And as a result, when you say, my gosh, how long has it been since I last you know, talked to my neighbor or something? And you think, I can't quite draw upon the footage. I can't pull up the footage to figure out how much time has happened in between. So it's all very confusing um, because it's hard to put down landmarks in our memory from these last several months. Wow. And then, you know, and then at the same time, I think of of the great artists, musicians, those that have spent maybe most of their life indoors, but uh, perhaps when the creativity is so strong that there still is that sense of memory. So there's got to be those examples in this as well. Yeah. I mean, I think with the great artists and so on, they're, you know, they're still going out. They're still um, going to people's homes and having... Uh... Yeah, having, having a normal life. I mean, being locked in like this, this is like being on a Mars hab where you're, uh, or, or on a ship to Mars or something where you're completely uh, locked in with just a few other people for a long period of time. And we've, most of us who have not been, you know, NASA trainees have never experienced something like this. And right. it's pretty, it's pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, what, are you worried that something like this could, could impact our, our sense of memory or our brain in, a, in any kind of a way? Well, I got to tell you, I'm actually quite optimistic about this, which is to say, um, it turns out, going back to brain plasticity for a moment, the 
most important thing you can do for your brain is to challenge it and kick it off the path of least resistance and um, give it novel challenges. And what's happened during 2020 is all of us have suddenly experienced that. So here's the thing, as, as one ages, one's brain gets less and less plastic because one has figured out the world or is figuring out the world. And that's a good thing, actually. We normally think about diminishing brain plasticity as being a bad thing, but what it represents is that you have an internal model of the world that's actually working for you. You're able to predict things, you know how people are gonna behave, you know how people will react, stuff like that. But what has happened to everybody now during this pandemic is suddenly we're off our hamster wheel and we have to rethink everything. And it turns out that's really good for the brain. And, and when I say that, what I mean is um, there, there are decade-long studies that have been happening about what happens when people retire, for example. And essentially, the bottom line is if your life shrinks and you don't do anything novel, you're really susceptible to getting dementia. Um, in contrast, people who stay cognitively active to their final days... Um, sometimes they physically have a disease like Alzheimer's disease, but they don't have the cognitive deficits that are associated with it. Even though their brain is getting physically chewed up by the disease, they are constantly building new pathways in their brain because they're cognitively challenged, as in, you know, they're facing novel experiences, they're dealing with other people, this kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, so even as parts fall apart, they're, they're making these new bridges and that's super useful. Anyway, that's the situation we're in is we're all building mm -hmm. new bridges in our brain. Whereas had 2020 just proceeded like any other year, most of us probably wouldn't have built too many new bridges. Well, I think there's something you said that really grabbed my attention, which is that as we age, the brain thinks it kind of understands the world. It thinks it knows what what this is, what that is. It doesn't need to understand complexity. And, and David, I mean, if I take that to the next level here, I mean, could that also explain things like this extreme political polarization? Could it explain how as people age, maybe they begin to see this group is like this and that group is like this? It could explain also certain racial tensions that we have. I mean, that sure. to me makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, what's interesting is each of us comes to represent a certain vessel of space and time because you have gone around and vacu vacuumed in your little version of the world and I've run around and vacuumed in my little version of the world and so on and everyone has done that. And um, yeah, that's exactly right. People become less and less flexible because they now have a model of the world as in when somebody says this, they're just being politically this way. And when somebody acts like that, they're just, you know, doing this. So you, you make a model of what's going on. It allows you to understand things more rapidly. It might not be more accurately, but um, nonetheless, we all have that. And what's, what I think is so important for all of us to realize is that having a point of view um, requires also having blind spots. So in other words, we all feel pretty certain that we have the correct point of view and all these crazy people on Twitter and Facebook have the wrong point of view. Um, but it's important for us to realize that, you know, no one has a lock on the truth. We all have our internal models of what's going on. And, and when I, you know, I mean, look, I have exactly the same reaction as everyone else. Which, you know, I, I look at somebody, somebody's screed on Facebook and I think, oh my gosh, that person's completely wrong. Um, and that person thinks the same about me. But uh, it's just important to realize that uh, we all come to the table with our, with our point of view. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask, you know, I mean, I think what you're getting at is a brand new model of the brain, one one in which there's a lot more movement and flexibility than maybe we would have thought of 100 years ago. So for you and for us to kind of think about this holistically, what this could mean for our future, what are some of kind of the big takeaways you'd want to leave us with? Yeah, I mean, the the, the brain is so remarkably flexible. Um, it would be, it's the kind of thing where um, as we can move forward, if we can learn how to understand the secrets of the brain and build technologies that, that can adjust. I'll give you just one quick example, which is near the end of the book, I look at what happened with the Mars rover called Spirit. Um, it, it's a multi-billion dollar project. We got it up to the red planet. It did a great job doing its thing, but then it got its right front wheel stuck in the Martian soil. 
and it died there. And you compare that to, let's say, a wolf, which gets its leg caught in a trap. What the wolf will do is chew its leg off and then figure out how to walk with three legs. And it would be great if we could actually build a robot that said, oh, okay, my wheel's stuck. I'm going to chew my wheel off and then I'm going to figure out how to operate this body plan in a different way. So I think there's a, a whole lot to think about in terms of uh, the, the future of how we think about building. And then in terms of our, our personal lives, um, the main thing that I think is so important is keeping your brain active and challenged. And, um, you know, one can do this in many ways. I sometimes, for example, brush my teeth with my left hand and or I shave with my left hand. It's not that hard, but it's useful exercise for the brain. One thing I did back in the day when we would all drive to work is um, I try to drive a different way home from work every day right. because otherwise you become an automatized zombie. And so, um, you know, constantly challenging yourself to see new things. And this is the challenge of, of the quarantine that we're in, is that it's very hard to find novel things to see and do and look at. Um, but that is the key thing for us to seek. David Eagleman is the author of Livewire, the inside story of the ever-changing brain. Thanks for the time today. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Still to come, how will all those extra hours of pandemic screen time impact the development of a child's brain? That's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from neuroscientist David Eagleman about the brain's plasticity and how it's adjusting continually to the world around us. But what happens to the brain during development? Does hours navigating digital content make for smarter kids? Or does it hurt their ability to process and retain information? These questions have never been more important, as millions of kids are adjusting to online learning. To help us sort through this, we're joined by Marianne Wolf, a professor at UCLA and author of Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in the Digital World. Marianne, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you talking about some topics that we all need to have more resolution on than we do. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Well put. Well, I mean, mm. I know that you have just been calling through the research about what happens when mm -hmm. we transition to online reading, which of course is happening now. And I, I know your, mm -hmm. your knowledge is exhaustive over multiple books, but if you could try and summarize what begins to happen to our brain as we're just staring at at that iPad or that computer screen trying to ingest um, lots of reading, what, what begins to happen in the brain? Well, the reality is that each of us can read on different mediums. But when we talk about children, we are talking about an unformed reading brain circuit. And everything I say begins and ends with a very simple realization that people need to make. Unlike oral language, we were never born to read. It's a very simple concept, but with complex consequences. That means that the brain, in order to read, makes a new circuit. And that new circuit is plastic. So when we learn to read on print, uh, you know, hard copy text the way we did, let's say, 10 years ago, especially, or even 20, uh, we were learning in a particular way how to give attention first to that decoding set of processes that are oh so important that allows us to get fast enough, even almost automatic, that we can allocate our attention to the development of what I call deep literacy. Here, Jonathan, is the rub. Deep literacy is a collection of processes. 
it begins with background knowledge and making an analogy. That's what you and I do, and every child does too. Here's what that word means. What does it mean when I connect it with what I know? Here's this concept. Here's this story. If the background knowledge says, oh, I know what trucks that have gravel, you know, that travel on gravel. If I have that concept, I'm immediately ready then to elicit and activate ever more sophisticated processes like inference, like perspective taking. One of the most important aspects that I'm going to be talking about through this program is that the two really important worries I have concerns whether or not when we read, we are giving enough time to take on the perspective of others. That's what builds empathy. That's what builds more background knowledge. But that collected with inference and analogy and all the rest of the background knowledge we have leads us to be able to be critically analytic. Now, what in the world does it have to do with iPad to your original question? Well, when we're reading on a screen, we have a tendency to be distracted. So when you think about what a normal screen does, even as I'm doing this particular interview with you, my mind is darting between the messages I have that are opening. We human beings have a novelty reflex. It means we are going to go to those areas of distraction because that's what our ancestors did to stay alive. Dart here, dart there. We were constantly aware of danger or possibility. Well, that same novelty reflex makes us, in our attention, easily bifurcating our attention. There's a wonderful line from Linda Stone about children on not just iPads, but in general, but especially on screens, that children are in a state of constant or continuous partial attention. Now, Jonathan, think about what this means in a developing reader. It means that the child is more likely to have that distraction take away the attention they need to develop inference, more background knowledge, applying it in analogical ways, and making finally, within milliseconds, a judgment. Is this true? Is it not? Is this something that I should believe? Or, and this is all under critical analysis, or I don't give any attention to it. I just absorb the information and go further. The ideal reading brain that we are forming in our children is able to allocate attention, not just to decoding and learning the or, or having access to the first meaning of whatever is there, but to work with that meaning, to process it, to make inference, to immerse into the world of, let's say, Charlotte, uh, into Wilbur's world, and to learn the empathy that comes from that. Well, the iPad is certainly better than the laptop, but the iPad and the screen are still giving us a set towards the transitory, towards the evanescent, especially with children. The very concreteness of the medium helps give them a kind of solidity to the words themselves. An almost geometric quality is attached to the words. That's not just for kids, by the way, Jonathan, mm -hmm. it's for us too. But the whole, everything um, wraps around three principles. First, we weren't meant to read, so we build a plastic circuit. Second, that plastic reading brain circuit reflects the characteristics of the medium. And third, the more you are on one medium, the more likely all of your reading, even though you can go back and forth, all of your reading is affected by the dominant medium. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what I'm hearing in this is that this is not just a question of, of, of how we learn to read or not, but what kind of a person we become yes. because the, the qualities that you're talking about, I think maybe first and foremost, that of empathy, that of taking mm -hmm. another perspective, which we know is something we develop in literature yes. anyway, that uh, these are qualities, of course, that, that we, we aspire to. And I wonder, and I wonder if there's any research in this too, which is that if we miss this window to develop that, that slow, deep reading, is, is there, could there potentially be changes in our character traits? Do we become maybe less fully formed as we move into an older age? With everything that we speak, there will be individual differences, Jonathan. And you can imagine that Socrates... <laughs> never read and never wanted us to read and, and probably there was no finer mind or finer character than his so everything i'm going to say has a denominator of individual difference but that said i will never forget one of the most important um, quotations from jane smiley the novelist and she was asked a question that seems unrelated but is very much so when asked whether the novel would disappear, she said, oh, no, the novel will, will be with us. The problem is it will be sidelined and people won't develop that form of reading that gives us empathy. And we will have leaders who don't read and who never understand at a deep level the thoughts and feelings of others. That same this is the underlying message of that quotation is one of the things that haunts me. If we develop, if you will, a way of reading that skips over, and I use the word skim as the new norm, and uh, wonderful San Jose researcher, Professor Liu, does a lot of work on saying, you know, skimming is the new norm. Mm -hmm. But if we develop this skimming uh, habit in which we're really basically missing the, the time it takes to immerse, to develop empathy. Will we, like what Jane Smiley worried about, have less understanding of others? All of this has a great implication for two things. One, our ability not to become silo thinkers or silo readers, but to be critical analytic processes of what information we have. And two, whether or not we will become ever more susceptible to just getting quick information, not processing, and therefore becoming ever more vulnerable, ever more susceptible to fake news, false news, demagoguery itself. So there is a direct connection that I draw in that last book. Unexpectedly, for me as a cognitive neuroscience, the last thing I thought I would be worrying about was the relationship between the development of deep reading or deep literacy and democracy itself. Mm. To think that we would have citizens who are not going beyond the surface processing of information is as disturbing a thought. I, I wonder though, are, are there, I mean, do we have the kind of, I don't know, longitudinal data sets for this or studies that can show how character could change over time if they don't get some of these skills early on? You know, this is really something that I want to study at UCLA. And there are longitudinal studies that are very different from what we're talking about. But but what we do have, Jonathan, and there's a, several books, but a, a very, the most recent one um, by Naomi Barron um, is looking at what are the data we have that tells us not just about empathy, but about the ability to comprehend what is read at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. And so she's gathered data 
um, there's a group called the E-Read Network in Europe, and people like Anne Mangan from Norway and Lalo Samaran from Barcelona um, is in Israel, Tommy Katsir, Marit Barzilay, all of them are working to try to figure out, including empathy, but especially comprehension, whether there are differences when um, a young person, different ages are being studied, but a young person reads the exact same story, paragraph, text on print or digital or the screen. And there is one database that is now um, a collection of databases. Therefore, it's called a meta-analysis mm -hmm. by Salmaron and Delgado. And they have over 171,000 subjects in this database that stretches from the year 2000 to 2000, around 2017. And the overarching finding is that comprehension is better on print. Sequencing of details, understanding the plot, that is better in print. But then is an Israeli researcher named Rockefeller wanted to look qualitatively and find out, well, what's going on? And the young adults in those, those studies she was looking at all said, well, you know, we actually prefer print, but we do better on the screen because we're faster. So they completely mist were mistaken about their own competence. They perceived themselves more able to understand on the screen, but the facts on the ground were that they did not. Now, the Israeli researcher Tommy Katsir studied fifth and sixth graders. Uh, she and Marie Barzilai did that, and they're finding the same effect for younger readers. So we are concerned <laughs> about the level of comprehension. Now, that does not mean you can't learn and learn wonderful cognitive and linguistic processes um, with the screen. We're not, we're not talking about a binary situation. We're talking about being calm, looking at a complex set of puzzle pieces and figuring out what will be best for what child, and there were, are going to be differences I study dyslexia, and many a child or individual with dyslexia actually can do better on a screen for a lot of reasons that are um, interesting. But, you know, by and large, younger children do better in the formation. This is what we know now. It, it may change, but the data now insists that we realize that they are doing better with uh, print text. Right. Well, I, I want to bring in our earlier guest here, David Eagleman. Um, yes. I know somebody you're very familiar with, and yes. both of you have this, this enormous interest in how our brains work. And he poses kind of an interesting argument here. Um, mm -hmm. He he says that, you know, in these early phases of, of kind of the brain and plasticity, that mm -hmm. um, there's this incredible opportunity for kids in the Internet era to access everything, to light up all the parts of their brain, to have endless curiosity to discover mm -hmm. and to find, especially as the, as the brain is kind of so open and growing and we're mm -hmm. creating these new pathways. And he actually described himself as a bit of a digital optimist when it comes mm -hmm. to this subject. I wonder how you would respond to that. Oh, I'm such an admirer of his work and quote it often. Um, in this area, we will have um, overlapping agreement and areas where we disagree. Um, he probably hasn't done some of the more intense research <laughs> on Fair what's enough. happening in literacy and that of course is my special area but he and i would absolutely agree that this plus the very plasticity that um we both are studying has not just ample extraordinary opportunity to grow so when i say this is not binary 
um, I, I'm in in real earnest, and in my I think you read the Guardian article this week, but um, I I began to do work um, on what I call a biliterate brain. What would be the ideal? And for me, the capturing of everything David is saying is part of that overarching biliterate brain's development. Except where we would differ is that I would be developing reading parallel with print, hard copy, especially with the parents in that zero to five period, really introducing much more of the book, love, love of the book, and the first five years of reading acquisition much more heavily with the book. But simultaneously, and this is where David and I uh, completely agree, um, teaching processing, coding skills, and developing um, access and knowledge, what I would call digital wisdom, about what are the all the ways that you can add background knowledge and practice. Um, this is one of the things that I'm very excited about. This is where I believe that the the screen digital capacities can really aid the very practice of foundational skills. No teacher can give uh, some of our children who are neurodiverse learners enough exposure and enough practice time. And the computer can do that. So we can use the computer to do two things that we never could do before. One, we can have um, the practice and the increase of the time it takes to learn the, the early skills, how to put letters and sounds together. These foundational skills are absolutely imperative for children to learn. And any child, our English language learners, our children with dyslexia, um, children who have more uh, different backgrounds, this can be a, such an aid. And it can also be an aid to every typical reader because you can use that digital screen to explore all kinds of background knowledge that you're constantly building. So David and I, I would say our areas of overlap are the optimism about the advantages that digital learning gives. Our areas of non-overlap are that for the first 10 years, I believe that the screen is actually less effective and could be even insidiously threatening their development of attention for this particular set of skills in deep literacy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing a, something I call a, a Nicholas of, C of Cusa approach where there are two con seemingly contradictory truths which, when examined, give us a way of looking at the whole in a more complex way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really interesting idea. And something tells me people would get behind that. Um, at the same time, here we are in this very confusing present moment. And I yes. know there are people listening today that have kids that are between the ages of zero and 10 mm -hmm. that are in school, that are on screens all day long, and that are maybe arguably scared about what's happening. So mm -hmm. knowing what you do, what would you tell them right now um, mm -hmm. for those that are concerned? What, what words do you have for them? This is what I want every parent to realize. They should not have the child on the screen as many hours as they are. And the antidote is the simplest of one. It is to read to their child or work with their child in reading to a dog or reading to a sister or a brother, but to make books one of the true antidotes to the time on the screen, but in a fun way, with choice, with engagement, um, there's there are going to be wonderful things happening in the very near future. I, I use the term bookalicious uh, because this is going to uh, be an app that parents can use to find out what in 15,000 books are most appealing and most developmentally appropriate for their child. There are all kinds of wonderful things. They're hooked, uh, they're links to their libraries, they're links to if they wish to buy a book, but there are all kinds of things happening. But the book is something 
precious. I can't tell parents enough how what the book does is to give a shared interactive experience, but it's also helping the child learn attention from zero to five. I want them to read every day, every night. Read, talk, and sing is the mantra I want parents to have. But it doesn't stop at five, five to 10. The modeling, our modeling is also important. So we too shouldn't be on the screen as much, Jonathan, as you and I are ourselves. But I literally begin and end my days with books. Books literally slow us down just enough to remember we have an inner sanctuary, the reading life. That's the Proustian principle where we go beyond, we, we have the time. We, we don't even have any perception of it, but the brain is giving extra milliseconds to go beyond critical analysis into the acme of reading, which is that, that, that time it takes to reflect, to contemplate, and gather sometimes our own novel thoughts. And um, this wonderful um, uh, L.A. journalist um, who wrote about the, the, how books become this way that we can literally transcend distraction. At the end of that reading process, we are activating five different layers of the brain, two hemispheres, four lobes in each. It is an extraordinary feat, that fully activated brain that puts all the processes together and gives us time to think our own thoughts. That's what I want every parent to give their child, to model for their child and also to regain to regain themselves so that this isn't lost time in the covid but a surprising found time well marianne wolf is a professor at ucla's graduate school of education and information studies also the author of reader come home the reading brain in a digital worlds thanks so much for the time today we really appreciate it thank you jonathan Take care, be well to all of you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.